Genesis chapter 1 and beginning to read in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our, in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth and every tree that has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth, which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw that all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that every time your word is spoken, you have something to say. And it's not because I have anything to say, but it's because your word does. And so I pray this morning, as I pray every week, that you would help me to get out of the way. And that the people of this church would understand you and your word better. But more than just increasing in knowledge and understanding of you, I pray, Lord, that it would impact our life because your word is meant for that, to transform our character. And so that we can be lights to this world who so desperately needs you. And so, Lord, we pray and we ask that your word now would do its work in our lives as we submit to it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So for the past couple of weeks, we've been going uh, back to the Garden of Eden. And we've been going to the Garden of Eden in order to better understand the main categories of human life and the way they were supposed to be. The way that they were supposed to be. So in other words, what was God's original paradise for humanity supposed to be? We started off by looking at the category of work in the Garden of Eden, and we discovered that God not only modeled creating work... um, But he designed humanity for work as well. Uh, In the cultivation of the soil and in caring for children, this is all a part of God's design. And this was prior to the fall. Therefore, work is to be understood uh, as a part of God's paradise for humanity. And I happen to believe that we are all going to work in heaven as well. Um, If you weren't here to listen to this, you can uh, have a listen on the website. For those of you who are from Genesis House, or those of you who may have missed it, it's pineridgehouse.com. But this morning we're going to shift gears into another main category in the Garden of Eden before the fall. And that's what God's intended relationship with humanity looked like. What was God's intended relationship with humanity before the fall? Now to begin with, I need to make a few preliminary comments. To define one's relationship with God as simply being forgiven of your sin ignores the massive sections of Scripture that declares our relationship with Him is conditioned on how we live. If we just define God as as being our Savior, we misunderstand the fuller depth of our relationship with God as He intended it for us. It is true that uh, forgiveness of sin is foundational to our relationship with God, but that is only one piece of the relationship with Him. And if we only focus on that, we ignore two-thirds at least of the Bible. And yet, I would venture to say, at least in my experience, much of our evangelism just focuses on the fact that people are lost and needing a Savior. If we do this, 
then the story of God begins at Genesis 3, not at Genesis 1 and 2. If we start by saying that Jesus and God is our Savior, we are starting the story of God at Genesis 3, but that's not where it begins. It begins in Genesis 1 and 2. And therefore, God had a life, uh, a, a plan to live with human life before the fall. And if we can begin to understand this, I think we'll better understand his uh, intentional design with us as he relates to us still now. His original design to relate to us, and now how it still um, is in place. <clears throat> so I guess the question then is, so what kind of relationship did God have with humanity? What kind of relationship did he have with us before the fall? Well, first of all, we begin with the observation that God loves life. Um, prior to our section that we read this morning in Genesis 1, 20 to 22, it describes God as making swarms of living creatures, teams and swarms of life. And he tells them to be fruitful and multiply because God loves life. And he didn't create two of every kind. It says there are massive amounts of living creatures in the sky and in the sea. And when he moves to creating man and woman, his life for love continues. But instead of creating lots of people, he just created two. But then he gave them the privilege of joining him in his life multiplying intentions. This is very important. It's pretty crazy to think of this. But as husband and wife, when we choose to have children, we are joining in God's life-multiplying intentions. We are joining God in this. He didn't create hundreds of thousands of people. He created two. And we, when we choose to have children, we are participating in the very intention of God in multiplying life on the earth. Because God loves life. Gordon Wenham, in his commentary on Genesis, says it right. He says, we have a clear statement on the divine purpose of marriage. It is for procreation of children. God desires his people to be fruitful. Sometimes people have come to me in premarital uh, conversations, and if they uh, start off by saying they, uh, having children is an option for them, I really tell them they probably need to go see somebody else. Because I don't think having the option of children when you get married is something that God intended. You get married... The intention by God is that you have children. God loves life. And so he says to humanity, I love life like crazy, and I want you to join me. I want you to join me in my life-giving intentions for all of humanity. So be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth full of life. Now, of critical importance when he created humanity is that human life is more important than plant and animal life. So we pick it up here in, in verse 26. It says, let us make man in our image. He didn't make plants and animals in the image of God. It says, let us make man in our image. Then again, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Human life is very different from plant and animal life and is more important to God. So what is it to be created in the image of God? I don't know. I don't know because the text doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us what the image of God is, but I will, give you, I will give you my hunch. I believe it has to do with the ability to relate to God. Man can enter into a personal relationship with God. We can speak with him and we can make covenants with him. Now, whether this has to do with the image of God or not, clearly that ability is given to human life. We have this unique ability to enter into a relationship with God. We relate to him out of our free will, and so, therefore, we can either bring pleasure to God in our free will, or we can bring disappointment to him. 
This ability to relate with God is critical to understanding the original design of God in Genesis 1 and 2. But here's the problem. At least from my limited experience, I would argue that our concept of God has been narrowly relegated to his saving us or to his requirement of obedience. I'll say that again. I believe that our concept of God has been narrowly relegated to his either saving us or to his requirement of obedience. Now, both of these are true, and they're vitally important to God. But do not give us a full view of his intended relationship with us. So let me explain to you some of the more common limiting views of God and their corresponding views of heaven. Uh, These are my terms, and I'm not saying they're out there, but they're my terms and from my experience. Uh, First of all, a limiting view of God would be viewing him as the Coast Guard Rescuer. God is our Coast Guard Rescuer. In this view, God is our Savior only. Your boat, it's in the middle of the ocean, and you're going down. And in absolute desperation, you radio for help because your boat is now sinking. The Coast Guard responds with, with incredible speed, and as you're helplessly drowning, a man pulls you out of the water, places you in the rescue basket, and hauls you to safety into the helicopter. And once you're on safe ground, you're invited to attend a large party where all who have been saved can now come together and thank the rescuer. Now, although the party is scheduled to last for days or years, if you know where I'm going with this, you have no reason to hang around the party because it's just to thank the rescuer and you soon leave. The problem with this view of God is that there's no real relationship. It's limited to the saving rescue of God to forgiving of your sin. Once saved, you thank the rescuer, but soon afterwards you carry on with life. All three, uh, now, I should say this. It's not true that uh, you aren't thankful. I'm not suggesting that. Um, But you have no reason to hang around with the rescuer because there is no relationship apart from the rescue. Um, All three of my daughters um, are swim instructors, and they are also lifeguards. And I was asking Cassidy this last week if she's... All three three are what? No, they're... All three of my eldest ones, sorry. See, you're not supposed to talk, I'm speaking. Yes, Jenna is here, and she's on her pathway. My three eldest daughters, they're all swim instructors, and they're all lifeguards, and I asked Cassidy if she's ever done uh, water rescue, and she has. And um, in Bobahan, for those of you who've ever swam at that pool, um, as adults or as parents, you can go up and view the pool area, but you have no direct access through steps. You have to go in the back, up some back steps, and you can go up, but there's no glass between you down below, but you can talk or you can yell, if you will. Um, it's about, I don't know what, 15, 20 feet up, cast something like that. And so you can watch your kids and stuff, but you, you, but you can't be there. So the instructors and the kids are separate. And uh, as Cassidy was instructing this one, uh, uh, this one day, uh, one of the children, not in her class, but in another class, had moved away from the side, had moved away from the side and was now drowning. And they were silently drowning because when you're under six inches, eight inches a foot of water, you can't say anything. But the, some of the women up top were noticing this and they were yelling. And if you've been in a pool where there's instruction going on, it is nothing but loud noise going all over the place. So the women are yelling. The instructor can't hear. Cassidy happens to hear and she runs over and she grabs this, uh, was it a little girl, Cass? Grabs this little girl and brings her up out of the water to safety. And of course the water, the, the, the daughter is quite scared, etc. 
And uh, as the story goes, Cassie goes back to her class and continues to teach. And so does this other instructor who ends up getting a little bit reprimanded, as you can imagine, afterwards. But the child's okay. But after the, uh, after the water rescue, if, if you will, uh, Cassidy had no relationship with the kid. Was she the rescuer? Was she the savior? Of course. I asked Cassidy if she knew the kid's name. She didn't know the kid's name. Because she was only there to rescue the child. The child did not have a pre-existing relationship with Cassidy, nor did the child believe that they had to have a relationship with him now. Because Cassidy was just simply the rescuer. That's it. After the rescue is over, that's it. There is no relationship. Now, it can start there at the rescue. It could start there. But the rescue in and of itself is not the means of relationship. Or it's not a relationship in and of itself. This is why defining God as our Savior only is not an accurate picture of God's desired relationship with humanity. The people who view God this way have a wrong understanding of God or have, I should say, a limited understanding of God and therefore will have a limited understanding of heaven. A party for God as just the rescuer, you will thank him, but then what? Then what? When Christians tell me that they are really not looking forward to heaven that much, it's because I believe they have this limited view of God. If he's just the rescuer, what am I looking forward to in heaven? not really looking forward to being with him, but I'm going to thank him like crazy. But after you thank him for a while, it gets boring. And when speaking of heaven, they rarely talk about being reunited with God. They talk about other things. They talk about being reunited with who? Loved ones who have died, who they have relationship with. They're not talking about the relationship with God they can't wait to be with for all eternity. They're talking about the relationship with people who have died, their mom or their dad or their husband or wife, because they're, they're looking forward to relationship in heaven. But they've misunderstood that that is primary God's understanding and what he wants us to be in, in his life, and in, or rather our life with him, is to be in relationship with him. Now, of course we're going to be reunited with our loved ones in heaven, but this pales It pales in meeting Jesus and being with him forever. And over and over in the New Testament, this is how it describes heaven. Yes, there'll be streets of gold, but it often describes as being with Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 4, when we're going to meet Jesus in the clouds, and thus we will be with the Lord forever. We will be with him forever. These kinds of people maybe only talk about streets of gold, and of course those are going to be there too just like there was in lush gardens in the Garden of Eden, but it pales in the relationship that we are going to have an unhindered relationship with Jesus for all eternity. But people will think of heaven this way if they currently have a limited view of God as their Coast Guard rescuer. This is not the full picture of God. Humanity did not start off with needing a rescue. That's Genesis 3. It started off with a relationship with God in Genesis 1 and 2. We'll get to that more in just a few minutes. But for now, let me give you another limited view of God. There's a Coast Guard rescuer. Uh, Another limited view of God is a a drill sergeant. A drill sergeant. In this way, we are to obey the the basic training officer, if you will, whereby if we follow his commands and obey him, we will make it into the Army. Todd, you went through basic training, didn't you, Todd? Did you go through it? Did you go through basic training in the Army? Yeah. Yeah. well, in, in the basic training, from what I understand, uh, he gives you a list of commands you've got to obey, whereby your connection to the sergeant is one of ongoing discipline and one of ongoing obedience. You're allowed to mess up occasionally. Well, they don't like it, but it's okay if you mess up occasionally. 
but you're to maintain a consistent, disciplined obedience in order to stay in basic training. Now, if you obey, if you make it, if you make it, you get through the army. If not, you get into the army. If not, you get hocked out of basic training. You you have a, a type of a fear for the officer, but you're also hoping for a reward from him, a reward of actually entering into the army. But you fear him as well. Incidentally, this is the common view of the Muslim God. Common view of the Muslim God. You obey the commands God's given you, but it's about, did I obey enough? Did I do enough right things? And then God lets you in. But it's not about being in a relationship with God afterwards. Now, if you make it through basic training, you have proven to be disciplined and you've proven to be obedient. And as such, you get a reward. A basic training graduation ribbon? What are you? <laughs> something. You get something. No ribbon. <laughs> no ribbon. <laughs> Trophy. Trophy, there you go. But you made it. You're now in the army. You made it. A friend of mine, um, Joe Hagen, some of you know him, uh, he went through basic training. And he says, there's no real relationship with the basic training officer. He's just requiring you to be disciplined and to listen to his obedient commands or to be obedient to his commands. It's grueling um, and for sure requires discipline and training. But here's the kicker. Once you make it through basic training, you become a part of the army, but you don't see your training officer really anymore. You don't need to. You may, but frankly, there's no need for it. You're now to live on base. At least this is the, uh, the way it works in America. You now can live on base, and your food and your housing and all the basic needs are taken care of. And everybody else has made it there, but here's the kicker. Even though all your needs are taken care of, your food, clothing, and housing, most leave the army after the first term. So again, we find that the drill sergeant description of God is inadequate because your obedience is done in order to get a ticket into heaven but it fails in describing what a real relationship with God is supposed to be like. If God is connected to man for the sole purpose of them being disciplined in living out his ways, then once we get to heaven, just like the army barracks, we'll have no real, relationship, no real relational reason to appreciate being around him because we are not relationally connected. This description is unlike the one we find in the Garden of Eden. Or the one that's described all throughout the Bible, for that matter. Or the one described in heaven. So let me give you a more complete view of God. I call it the life-giving, loving Father. Life-giving, loving Father. In this view, the key is the fullness of life that can only be found in God. It can only be found in Him. In this view, the story of God and humanity starts in the Garden of Eden with the perfect relationship. The relationship, therefore, must give us some kind of relationship that God desires to have with us. In the Garden of Eden, there's no drill sergeant, there's no rescuer. Instead, we find a life-giving, loving Father. If you're still in Genesis, have a look at some of the... And I'll just make some references as we go through here. The Father, as a giver of life, makes the decision to have children. This is Genesis 1.27. Then God decided to create man. So he decides to have children, the father does. And once born, the father looks at Adam and Eve and declares them to be a treasure beyond measure. That's where he says, it is very good, as we notice in verse 31. <clears throat> After Adam and Eve were created, this is a treasure beyond measure. It is very good as he looks at them. They are then raised in a kind and gentle and loving environment as they interact with God. And in addition to love, he raises them in a type of paradise 
where everything around them is beyond description. It says in Genesis 2.9 that it was, it was pleasing to the sight. I think that really pales in the kind of description we would give it, but it was pleasing to the sight. This is where humanity gets placed by God to dwell. The food their father provides is so full of taste and had such variety that they no doubt looked forward to every meal. Again, it was good for food for them. I think of all kinds of, of tropical fruit and apples and bananas and mangoes and just a massive feast. I love fruit, by the way, so this really works with me. Um, but it was good for food, and as they looked all around them, the fruit was already available to them, and God is their provider and something that would have been fantastic for them to taste. Also, just as a child wants to be like their parent, so too, I believe, there was a desire on Adam's part to be like his dad. Here's what I mean. Part of a boy wanting to be like his dad means that you work. And uh, God creates the earth, and um, in Genesis, it describes him as working. Genesis 2.2. Now, Adam grew up seeing the workmanship of his dad all around him since the day he was born, if you will. And my hunch is that Adam may have wondered how he might be able to be like his dad and contribute and work. And God the Father also desired Adam to have this work ethic, so he gave him responsibilities at his workplace. And so he says, I want you to name all the animals, and I want you to take care of the garden. Genesis 2, 15 and 19. And the Father then is described as, as watching Adam as he names all the animals. He's not criticizing him. He's not second-guessing him, but he delights in all the names he gives them. 2.19. Imagine the God of the universe being there with Adam and saying, Adam, these are great names. I love them all. As you have named them, Adam, so they will be. In a very real way, God was saying, great job, son. It's what the approval of all children look for. They look for the approval of mom and dad. Not because their parents are drill sergeants, but because they long for their love and they long for their approval. This is really describing God as being close to Adam. Now, part of the time God spent with Adam was within the context of giving him important instructions for life on how to live life to the fullest. And of course, Genesis 2, 16 and 17, you can eat of any tree in the garden, but do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I picture something like where after a good meal and a hard day at work, where your mom or your dad uh, sits you on your knee or you sit together and they want to talk to you about life. This is the way I see God. Adam's obedience to these instructions was partly motivated out of fear of punishment. That is true. And of dying. True. But more so, I believe it was motivated out of fear of losing that relationship. Here, Adam needed to trust God that his instructions for his life were taking his best interests in mind. He had to trust God for that. In Deuteronomy 10.13, it's a great verse. It says, all of these instructions I'm giving you to Israel this day is for your own good. The instructions that God was given Adam and Eve was not to make their life difficult. It was for their own good. Now, I'm going to skip the part about losing favor with God in Genesis 3 because we know that quite well. However, once we have repented and we've received forgiveness, what is it like to now be in a relationship with God? Not like a rescuer or a drill sergeant only, but one that gives glimpses of a relationship, the kind of relationship Adam initially had with God, one as being a father, as we find him in Genesis 1 and 2. 
That's why it says when Jesus came, comes to the earth in, in John 1, 4, it says, in him was life. Now, does that include salvation? Of course it does. But then Jesus says, I came that they might, light, might have life and have it abundantly. He's not talking about just being saved, but ongoing life now with a life-giving, loving Father. And while we are on this earth, we get to taste that. We get to taste it. But in heaven, we get the fullness of it. In, in heaven, we get the fullness of a relationship with God. Listen to some of these descriptions. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 We will be with the Lord forever. Colossians 3.4 When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, we will be with Him in glory. Philippians 1.23 Paul says, Having the desire to, be, to depart and to be with the Lord is very much better. They're not talking about streets of gold. They're not talking about reuniting with loved ones. They're talking about being with God. That is a definition of heaven. And if you understand him simply as a rescuer or as a drill sergeant, you'll be looking for other things in heaven. You won't be looking for God himself. But if you understand him as a life-giving, loving father, you'll be looking forward to being with God. You see, within all of us, there is a desire to be loved. Every human being desires to be loved. We all desire to be liked. But only God can fulfill that perfectly. Why? Because God is described as love. He himself is described as love. 1 John 4, 8. And to describe him as love means he is primarily observable in his relationships with others. In describing himself as our father, what he's doing is he's using family language to help us better understand his desired connection with him. The overwhelming description of God in the Bible is one of being our father. And so using that... Why would we choose as parents to have children? So, so that we can rescue them when they're drowning someday? So that we can give them a bunch of commands? We will both gladly do that. We will both rescue our kids in times of danger, and we will give them commands. But is that why we have children? No, we have children because we desire to be related to them. I've, I've said this before, but the, the worst thing that my kids can do to me, the absolute worst thing my kids can do to me is to say, I don't want you to be a part of my life. They can be a brutal sinner out there, but the worst thing they can do to me is saying, Dad, I don't want to be related to you anymore. It's the same as God. The worst thing you can do to God is to tell him, I don't want you to be a part of my life. Now, every one of us is born into some kind of family where the, the best possibility of love and affection, affirmation, encouragement, and support exists. Now, does this always happen? No. And even when it fails, uh, and even when it does happen, it is flawed. But the family language is the best earthly picture we have of how God wants to relate with us. That's why I love this story, and I've referred to this often, but... The story I love in, in describing how God is, is the prodigal son in Luke 15. A lot of people use that story to really talk about this lost son who ends up coming back. And that is true. It's a, it's a main part of it. But what I love about that story is when the prodigal son is coming back, um, when he's coming back, the father is looking and he's looking. Where is he? Is he coming? And he sees him and he runs out and he meets him and he grabs him and embraces him. And after he gives him a hug, he doesn't say, now go over there and go party. He says, now we're going to have a feast. You are here with me, now we're going to have a feast. And it says there that, that he desired to be merry and to dance with his son. 
who has returned. That's the picture of God the Father. He can't wait to be with us. And when we get to glory, it's not going to be, you guys are part of this choir over here and, and over there, so now I'll start singing praises. He's going to grab us and wrap his arms around us and say, now you're here. That's the way it's described in Revelation chapter 21. God will be among his people. He will be with us, celebrating with us. The God of the universe who is described as love and defined, therefore, in relationships with other people. When we get to glory, he's going to be defined by how he relates with us as a perfectly loving God who never makes mistakes in his love towards us. And inside of us, if we're to be honest, the number one longing we have is to be liked, is to be loved. And only God can fulfill that. But it will be fulfilled in glory. Like you've never had it felt before. His loving God who's going to meet us at the end of the driveway of heaven, if you will, and wrap his arms around us and says, welcome, you're here, you're here. That's why it describes God over and over as being us being with him in glory. Yes, there's going to be streets of gold. Yes, there was lush gardens in the Garden of Eden. But it pales in comparison of what it's going to be like to be with the Lord. Now, I should say this. The Garden of Eden is limited in helping us understand his original design of being with humanity. Here's why it's limited. Because largely, God didn't know what humanity was going to do. He was giving him the option of loving him or not. Those of us who go to heaven, we've already chosen to love him. So it's going to be a kind of relationship with God that is going to be um, far, it'll, it'll far surpass anything we see in the Garden of Eden because we've already made the choice to be with him. But God is the one who gives his immeasurable love to us. 1 John 4, 8. One who looks to us as his absolute treasure. One who cannot wait to be with you in glory. And if you've gotten a hold of this view of God, you've gotten a hold of the God of the Bible. And once you have him, you've got everything. You don't need anything else. Now, I've spoken long enough. And I am interested to hear uh, maybe some thoughts or comments, but I have a few lessons. I, uh, and I understand Andrew does this as well at the end of the sermon. I have a few lessons that I hope you wouldn't miss, some of the key points from the sermon, and hopefully we can have a discussion around this. I feel like I'd be going like a freight train this morning. I wanted to get through all this information. I hope you were taking good notes. If not, you can have my sermon notes. First of all, God loves human life. He loves human life and has given husband and wife the privilege of participating in his life-giving intentions and procreation. When you decide to have children as husband and wife, this is not just about you and your husband and you and your wife. This is about you saying yes to God and God saying yes to you as you say, I want to participate with you in your life-giving intentions. It's an incredible privilege that God has given to us. We get to participate in what he so longs and desires for on this earth. And he wanted the earth to be filled, to be filled with life. And he gives us the the opportunity and the privilege to participate in his life-giving intentions. Secondly, Evangelism that only describes God as Savior from our sins misrepresents his desired relationship with humanity. I know we have to start there. I know that that's the foundational piece of beginning a relationship with God. But 
From my limited experience, I feel like we've, we've gone so overboard on describing him as Savior that we forget the rest of God's desired intention in actually being related to us on a regular basis. And so if we, if we only describe God as our Savior, he is that, and that is the foundational piece to begin a relationship with God. But if we only do that, we misrepresent his desired relationship with humanity. Thirdly, this is a longer one. Although God is our rescuer, he is our Coast Guard rescuer and a command giver, drill sergeant, if you will. He does give commands for us to obey. To ignore him as being our life-giving, loving father is to misrepresent him. So he is those two. He is our Coast Guard rescuer and he is our drill sergeant, in a sense, giving us commands. But if you ignore him as being our life-giving, loving father, you misrepresent him. That's why the Muslim God doesn't work. He's not just a God who gives us commands and you obey them or not, and on the basis of whether you obey them, I'll let you come into heaven or not. It's not about a ticket to glory. What it's about, it's about, it's about God longing to be related to us. Now, how we get related to him, yes, we do um, need him to be our savior. And yes, he wants us to obey his commands. We've gone through this in John chapter 14. If we love him, we'll keep his commands. Yes, he longs for these things, but it's all wrapped up in a life-giving, loving father who wants to be related to us. And that's why he uses the term Father. I noted there in, in Matthew 6, uh, 8 and 9, this is how you pray to God. Our drill sergeant, our Coast Guard rescuer who art in heaven, our Father. It's the best possible description God can grab a hold of us, God can grab a hold of to help us understand the kind of relationship he wants to have with us as a Father. And then finally, Although heaven is the ultimate picture of beauty, it is more fully described as being with God in perfect relationship. All those verses in there, I mean, I've referred to all of them already, but it's over and over. Heaven's described as being with Him. I can't wait for that. I can't wait for that. I'm not longing for heaven to see the streets of gold. I'm longing to be with Jesus in an unhindered relationship. I get to be with Him. I've said this before, if it's just about streets of gold, it's like having a free pass at Disneyland with nobody being there. You'll have fun for a while, but if nobody's there, it's no fun anymore. Of course God wants these fringe benefits, like he did in the paradise of the Garden of Eden, but more than anything, he wants to be related to us, and we, need to be, we want to be related to him. We want, it to be, we want to be related to a perfectly loving God who is perfect in his love. And a lot of us with apprehension at times we go and as we're related with people, we don't know how they're going to respond, even husband and wife sometimes. We don't know how they're going to respond, so we go sometimes in with a little bit of fear and trepidation. That doesn't exist with God. Fully abandoned. As we fully abandon and let him know who we are. And God says, I love you. I so long to be with you. It's time to begin the party. It's time to celebrate. And I'm not going to be watching off in the bleachers. I'm going to be with you, celebrating with you. And we're going to dance together. That's the picture of God. Now, you might think that I've been overly hard on the notion of God being a Savior. I, I, I didn't mean to be overly hard on it because if, you, if God is not our Savior, you don't have a relationship with Him. What I'm trying to be hard on is that being the primary or even the only real description we give of God. That's not. If that's the case, then let's start at Genesis 3. No, that's not what He wants. Let's start at Genesis 3 and let's not get to heaven. 
Let's not get to these other definitions of what it's like to be in heaven. Let's not talk about when Paul says, I I desire to be departed to be with the Lord. Let's not talk about those things because it must be just about him saving us. It's way more than that. And we get to have a taste of it while we're here on the earth. And part of that taste, I think, is helpful when we look at the Garden of Eden. All right. uh, I'm interested to hear what you're thinking. Your thoughts or your comments on